So as um, I referred to earlier in the retreat, this, this retreat was actually the first um, uh, residential retreat that I ever went on. And um, so it was a door into the deepening of my practice. And Irina and Eric Kolvig were my, my teachers in that way. But, but this retreat is so much more important to me because it is also the first retreat that Irina and Eric gave me the opportunity to teach. And so, in a way, this retreat has deepened my practice. And I just, you know, I'm so appreciative of you, Irina, for supporting me and, um, and helping me through these years of practice and um, I just honor the fact that you were the one that actually f- created this idea and it wouldn't have happened without you. And so tonight you get structure. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, (laughs) and I wanted to talk about the subject of freedom because it's out there, you know, the, uh, our communities, in our communities, especially because there are a lot of efforts to take away freedom from us and to restrict it and to restrict our rights and, and really deny the reality that we are part of the universal family. So I'll begin by quoting, at least this is a quote that I understand to be attributed to Gloria Steinem, that the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. (laughs) (laughs) So if there's any of that energy in what I have to share, I invite you just to take what you need and leave the rest behind. Um, And uh, so... The title of the talk is, um, because it has some structure. (laughs) (laughs) And then he always has such a good title. (laughs) Is the freedom we want is not always the freedom that we get. So I don't know how many of you have had the privilege of traveling outside of our culture into other countries, Um, but if you have, it quickly becomes apparent that we have many freedoms that other cultures and other societies don't have, uh, whether it's around political um, freedom or the ability to practice spirituality in the ways that we um, choose. Um, and even though the, uh, the government can feel authoritarian, it is not an explicit dictatorship. Um, you know, the, our, our relationships in gender are certainly not equal, but uh, there is more freedom to express ourselves within the range of gender identity and gender than in many cultures and societies. And certainly, you know, that we, are, we have some freedom to move in, the, in, the, uh, in our world, in our culture. We can study, we can work, we have the ability to travel, and we have the, bit, the ability to come out, even though there are still 
um, uh, there's still oppression and repression of our community. But we have more freedom than many places in this world. And the question is, is this truly freedom? Do you really feel free when you can do whatever you want, whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, and with whomever you want to? We could also ask, is this what it's about? Does this really make us happy? So His Holiness um, says, It's fascinating. In the West you have bigger homes yet smaller families. You have endless conveniences yet you never seem to have any time. You can travel anywhere and in the world and yet you don't bother to cross the street to meet your neighbors. I don't think people have become more selfish, but their lives have become easier and that has spoiled them. They have less resilience and they expect more. They constantly compare themselves to others and they have too much choice, which leads to no, no real freedom. So there's a parallel in the Buddha's life. Because before he went um, on, on, the, on the journey that he went on to search for awakening, uh, up until his late 20s, he was cared for and lived in these three incredible palaces that his father and his, the king and the queen uh, built for him. And um, his every need was taken care of. Uh, and his, it's said that his mother and father appointed many beautiful court ladies, and I would assume beautiful men, to attend him, and I would assume, and actually in reality at the time, there, there is documentation of gender-neutral um, folks as well. And they would arrange these banquets, and you know, um, I'm assumingly that, that every sensual pleasure was taken care of. But he left, because ultimately it wasn't leading to happiness. And he was searching for something else, something, something that could lead to ultimate freedom. Within the freedom to do whatever we want, even the freedom to do what we think is right, we are in fact still at the mercy and being controlled by a power that's not about any external authority or oppressor, but by an internal force that's actually greater than any of those. And that's the suffering that's caused by our own minds. So each time we go into retreat, each time you enter this kind of sacred space, we follow the Buddha's path away from those three palaces, into the exploration of what is really freedom, what will really lead to happiness. And this exploration un begins to unfold in deeper and deeper ways as the retreat lengthens. Here we are in this incredible, I mean, I was watching the sun go down and the hills were just glowing and 
just this incredible land. And we already mentioned this, how we're taken care of by the cooks and the staff and the housekeeping and the, and the caretakers of the land. And we weave a container of safety for all of us so that we can relax and share in these priceless teachings to support each other. And when we sit, are we completely at peace? Is the mind quiet and stable and able to follow the breath? And if it's not, what's going on? What's going on is our mind. Because our mind is conditioned to incline always towards desire and the flip side of aversion. So it's said in the, uh, in, the, in the teachings of dependent origination, from our sense doors there's contact, just contact with an object. And as soon as contact arises, the feeling tone, the Vedana arises, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And as soon, because of the conditioned mind, when we meet uh, pleasant or unpleasant, there's craving that arises. Craving either to push unpleasant experiences away or to get more of pleasant experiences. This is the ability of our mind to change what really is in front of us, want it to be something else, and create suffering in our lives. And we also have the inability to see the truth, and this is the delusion. To be unaware of the consequences of feeding this desire Because actually the consequence of the craving and the attachment to desire is that it can actually never be satiated. All craving is the craving for no craving. All craving is the craving for no craving. Because the object of the craving is the satisfaction, it's the plateau. So whether, you know, if I've had, I've had an extensive drug history, so those of you who have had similar experiences know that it's, that it's not the process of ramping up. It's the high that you want to maintain for the rest of your life. But even backing off from that extreme, looking at the desire around hunger. This is where the practice of the eight precepts or or eating five bites from full is so illuminating. Is that we think that the food, we think way beyond, we eat way beyond what we actually need. Because we're satiating a desire. And there are consequences to that because it actually doesn't make us feel very good when we eat that far beyond our need. So the Buddha, the Buddha gave the teaching of the Santitagatha, which is the teachings for the rich. 
you noble ones. And I would say that includes us because it is, it, it is the nobility of the practice of purifying our hearts and opening the mind and clearing the mind. This is what makes one noble. You noble ones who want to escape from all the various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For people who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy even if they're in heaven. For people who do not know satisfaction are poor even if they're rich. People who do know satisfaction are rich even though they're poor. So the inclination of the mind towards contentment is what makes a rich life. All craving, in a way, seeks its own destruction. It seeks satisfaction. But satiating craving doesn't create real satisfaction. It's only temporary. It's fleeting. Because craving the craving of desire has no insight. It has no wisdom. It doesn't have the ability to see the truth. And the truth is the second noble truth in that craving and desire are the cause of suffering itself. Only awareness has the wisdom and insight. So just as the mind has been conditioned to be unaware craving and reactive, so it can be conditioned to be aware, content, and equanimous. So there, I, I think that there are a lot of activists in our community here. And so there's a distinction in desire that I think is really important to make. And in the Pali, there's, a word, there's, there's the word um, tanha, which is the word for clinging that, that we're referring to. But there's also a word chanda, and that is the desire to do, the desire to, um, and possibly the desire to transform, which has no valence to it because you can actually turn it towards either skillful or unskillful activities. But tanha is the desire not to do, it's the desire to have. So the, the, the subtle, um, the subtle the, it's not so subtle, but it's the complexity of um, our work in social transformation is that we often have this desire to do motivated from very deep, well-intentioned spaces. And do we have tanha, which is the desire to have the outcome? because the attachment to the outcome is suffering. Lama Anagarika Govinda says, according to the level of wisdom or insight, chanda either turns into kamachanda or tanha, sensual desire, or dhamma-chanda, which is the desire for liberation. We think that our freedom is dependent on the object of our desire satisfying it. But 
as Arena and Charmaine have said, our actual freedom is dependent on our internal relationship to the object or experience. Freedom is not getting an object to satisfy the desire. Freedom is exploring the desire itself. So each moment you are sitting, you are part of this conditioning to be awake. Each moment we walk, we're bringing an awareness and a moment of freedom. Each moment you're mindful of the arising, wanting things to be other than the way they are. You are actually not lost in that. It may not feel like freedom. It may not feel like the freedom we want. But this is the freedom that we get in practice in each of these moments. And actually, this is the freedom that we need. We begin to distinguish what it is we want versus what it is that we need. So there was a discussion in the Eight Precepts earlier around recognizing how much food, how little food we actually need and how much we actually eat because of the desire. So whether you've been sitting in meditation practice just this is your first retreat or whether this is one of many retreats that you've been to. Maybe the sittings have been very concentrated and still and focused or maybe they've been uh, open and spacious. But is every sitting like that? Because things happen. Thoughts emotions, physical sensations. And the question that, that it arises is when things happen, is it possible to maintain the mindfulness and awareness? Can we just watch and be aware? Because there emerges a different kind of freedom that is not dependent on whether we like what emerges or not. Awareness of the craving is not the craving itself. Likewise, awareness of the anger is not the anger itself. Awareness of the depression is not the depression itself. It begins to change the experience just by watching. And the power of awareness gives us the choice to begin to change our lives. And the question that the choice is about is whether it leads to more suffering or less. This is the moment of freedom we're actually searching for, but it's not the idea of freedom that we want to have. 
but these are the steps to freedom, an incremental practice, each step being more free and more peaceful. Thich Nhat Hanh's book was, peace is every step. It's not get there any way you can. The goal is peace. <laughs> so it helps not to respond to these sensations of pleasant and unpleasant. This is why the second foundation, the Vedana practice, is so powerful. The Buddha said, where there is attachment to the pleasant, aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is just not possible. Freedom is a letting, is, is, a, is a letting life happen. It's getting out of the way of our responses to pleasant and unpleasant experiences and letting them be fully lived. Freedom is not doing whatever we want to do because of pleasant or unpleasant experiences. That is not freedom. That's actually addiction. Addiction to gathering more pleasant experiences in our life and escaping unpleasant ones. So as we sit with all the discomfort, if we took all the discomfort in the room of this past five days, how big of a list would it be? <laughs> how, how, you know, we could write novels. And it is, it's, this is why it's such a precious and beautiful practice that we all have done. Because it's not being done anywhere else. And as you sit with discomfort in the body, the mind, the heart, this is such a worthwhile practice because it is giving you freedom. In Thailand, there is no such thing as zabutan or zafus. There, what is there is painted concrete. <laughs> and you sit. And the Dharma talks are three to four hours long. And I don't understand Thai. <laughs> it is such a worthwhile practice. So, if you, if you have any ideas of practice, sitting, sitting with a teacher that you don't like, sitting with uh, a talk that doesn't resonate with you is such a worthwhile practice. <laughs> so Trungpa Rinpoche, who is this sort of um, crazy wisdom guy that, started, that, that initiated the Shambhala tradition and transformed Tibetan practice in the West, he, wa he's, he was brilliant in his pithy sort of responses and people would try to catch him on the most difficult questions. So one of the questions that was asked of him was, uh, what gets reborn? And so his immediate response was, your neuroses. <laughs> so being trained as a therapist, I went back to Freud, who coined neuroses, and I looked you know, some of the definitions. One of the definitions is neurosis is our inability to tolerate difficulty or pain. So if you put the two together, the wheel 
of samsara, which is the wheel of suffering, is the rebirth of our inability to be with pain. This is why sitting with discomfort and the pleasant, unpleasant sensations breaks that cycle. These discomforts can seem like disturbances that are, you know, like uh, intolerable, whether it's sort of unskillful interactions in, you know, on, on retreat or the breaking of silence or the roommate that's snoring or, you know, hearing things when there should be noble silence. In spite of all that is their freedom. Can we drop the prerequisites that we have for freedom? Because actually there are none. As a person of color, as a gay man, as a man who loves other men, for years I did not see myself in these halls. And in many places I still don't. I wanted to change the room. I wanted the room to be completely different. And there was craving. There was intense craving and suffering over this wanting things to be different. What the practice has offered me over time was the ability to practice despite the discomfort and unpleasantness the ability to practice almost anywhere, with anyone, under any condition. And there's some freedom there. And of course, the external conditions are still unfair to communities like ours. Is getting rid of suffering and unfairness a prerequisite to your freedom? Does your freedom depend upon your life being fair? And so just to bring that into this room, how many of you do not see yourselves in this room? So the suffering for some of us, maybe many of us, I don't know, is here. But you know, so is the freedom. Because you haven't left. Because you are still here. And this is not just a personal practice about negotiating difficult sensations. How can we collectively transform the suffering of this wanting to change the room? Even if there are not enough numbers in the differences among us to see others like ourselves, can we create a community that sees all of us deeply, each of us for who we are. 
and just to acknowledge the multiplicity of communities that come to make this community. It's complicated. It's difficult. And as we see each other more and more for who we really are, without condition, we begin to see that we have different needs. And some of those needs even conflict with each other. And can we hold all of that with our practice and our loving kindness and our compassion and our awareness? So this is just a... um, uh, an example for the queer community, but when we were forming the, when we were beginning to deepen the, the, the um, well, I don't want to go in, but we were, we were deepening the group in Oakland, the question came up of what to call it. I mean, you know, we could call it the traditional lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and that's not enough these days. It never was enough. Because it does not see the experience of so many people. And uh, for example, in communities of color, the words lesbian and gay don't land. They don't relate. And so then when you begin to include words like queer, which may or may not resonate with people depending upon you know, your political experience or possibly generations, possibly, you know, the community that you're coming from. Then, you know, in different communities of color, there's a term, same gender loving. Well, this is actually not resonant with people in the trans community because there is no single gender that is the same. And so then there's the euphemism within some communities of color of family that is used to hold our communities. And this feels, for some people, this feels like going back in the closet. This is our collective reality. This is what we need to be aware of, to hold and to live through, because no one is going to do it for us, certainly not the mainstream community. So just a reminder that, you know, when we talk about needs, those that usually don't get met are in the non-dominant groups of any community. And so that we have non-dominant groups, even in ours. And this is, this is where our awareness practice can expand. The other reason that I really want to honor Eric and Arena for starting these LGBT retreats, we were talking about it maybe 12, 13 years ago? something like that. Uh, I mean, I've only been involved with them for three or four. But they actually, it wasn't a direct link, 
but it created the opportunity for people of color retreats to happen at Spirit Rock. It would have taken much longer. And this is where our, the interdependence of even our oppression can be mutually supportive if we begin to reconnect. So these culturally specific retreats, whether they're queer or POC, are Dharma gates that have never happened before. And we have a lot of work to do. There are a few of you in the room that know this data, but to share it with most people, most of you, the POC retreats and the POC sitting groups are sometimes over 40% queer. In fact, as, uh, when Gina Sharp and I were teaching the POC retreat, she turned to me and she said, am I the only straight person here? <laughs> <laughs> so mindfulness doesn't mean to be passive in the face of disparity or inequity or injustice. The exploration is whether you can have freedom while you are changing the disparity. So Sayadaw Upandita says, and this is so important for us who are working to change ourselves and the world, practicing satipatthana or mindfulness is, means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who practice. Without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. So whether you're new to this retreat or whether you've been here for many years, you may be getting a sense of how precious and rare an opportunity it is as a door into these practices of loving kindness and freedom and awareness. These, these practice opportunities are so special, so rare. Use them to their fullest potential and see if you can feel your way into the practice of not being attached to the preciousness, to the specialness, to the rarity. The Dharma is infinite in its breadth. Allow your experience to be the door into this infinity, but not restricted by it. The chanda, or the desire for spiritual liberation, can easily transform into tanha, or clinging to a spiritual form or a certain way of doing things. The attachment to freedom is not freedom itself. And this is where the teachings get progressively more and more subtle. So one practitioner said after the second day of practice, I discovered a whole world inside of me that I never knew about. 
if we can discover that in two days, what would it be like to practice a week, ten days? Continue the practice into your life. What would we find out? What are the worlds we can find out inside? So the invitation is for these retreats to be the source of your strength to go out and experiment and practice, try different venues, different teachers, and always, you can always come back to this community for your sustenance, for that which feeds you. And it's, it's what Irina was, was sharing last night about where can you drop below the storyline of identity? Just challenging yourself to go beyond that identity and seeing where the practice will lead you. Freedom comes from letting go of all of our views and concepts of what freedom is like or what it should be. So in an, in an Olympic year, this is an Olympic story, um, but it's not of this Olympics. It's, uh, uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of this um, man called Billy Mills. He was born on the um, Sioux Reservation, Pine Ridge, uh, in um, South Dakota. And he grew up in extreme poverty, like many Native Americans. His mom died of cancer at eight, and his dad died of a stroke when he was 12. And he turned to sports for, to process or to hold his grief and his anger. And he took up running while he was um, in a boarding school uh, in Kansas. And when he was a junior in the University of Kansas, he made the NCAA All-American three times. And when they were taking the shot, you know, the publicity shot, he was told to get out of the photograph. And he relates later that he almost committed suicide over the incident. But his father's voice told him to persevere. And he went on to win the 10,000-meter race in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. And no American did it before or has done it since. And he writes, I asked for wealth that I might have power. I was given poverty that I might find my inner strength. I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given powerlessness that I, that I might learn to surrender. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate every minute. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing that I asked for, yet all my wishes came true.
freedom is not what we think it is. Not what our ideas tell us it is. It is not some place that we get to, nor if we train the mind long enough, we'll always be able to sit in this peaceful state of bliss. That there are no thoughts of greed, hang, greed, hatred, and delusion. That's another kind of craving, and that's the craving for freedom. We have moments of freedom in our life and our practice, and then we let them go. We don't cling to it. We allow each moment to fall away. We don't say, oh my God, what an amazing experience, I want it back. We simply notice what the next moment is arriving in our awareness. And why is that so important in our lives? So there's this issue of the legalization of our marriages. And how many permutations has it gone through in the courts? It's, it's a bipolar experience. <laughs> and we don't know what's going to happen on November 4th watching. And what helps is a larger perspective. So I don't know if you've seen the, the movie Saving Marriage, which is the documentary of the Massachusetts struggle for legalization of the marriage. But it shows this bipolar, you know, up and down, reversal and success. And we, we begin to realize that this is what it's going to take. And that's, and knowing that, that context, that space, allows us to just be with the singular event, regardless of what it is. As we work through our own transformation and self-healing, we are beginning to change our collective, historical, generational patterns of trauma and depression. Do you really believe this? So in Thailand, there's another practice that they do on the land because they believe that as we practice on the land, it not only purifies us, but it purifies the land. So the nuns and the monk will do walking meditation before anything is built, a temple. They will do the walking meditation. They'll do sitting practice. And then they will start to build the temple in a way of healing the land. One of the African-American practitioners heard this. And so she lives in Tallahassee. And she's begun to take the metta practice to the trees in which African-American men were hung. And the people who show up are not just African-Americans. And the healing process transcends those personal lives. So this is a portion of a poem about freedom. by Khalil Gibran. An orator said, 
speak to us of freedom. And he answered, at the city gate and by your fireside, I have seen you prostrate and worship your own freedom. Even as slaves humble themselves before a tyrant and praise him, though he slays them. I, in the grove of the temple and in the shadow of the citadel, I have seen the freest among you wear their freedom as a yoke and a handcuff. And my heart bled within me. For you can only be free when even the desire of seeking freedom becomes a harness to you and when you cease to speak of freedom as a goal and a fulfillment. You shall be free indeed when your days are not without a care nor your nights without a want or a grief, but rather when these things girdle your life and yet you rise above them naked and unbound. When I heard Arena's closing poem or story last night, it, it, I, I just, those last words of this poem just resonated in the same way because the words that she ended her talk was, knowing death, not being afraid to dance in the middle of hell, unplugged, sassy, and present. Freedom is where we are right now letting go right now into this experience of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that are arising right now. Freedom is every time you sit in that Dharma seat, that noble Dharma seat that no one can take away from you. Each time you do walking meditation, True freedom doesn't mean to be in a place that there's no problem or struggle or even oppression. It means to be in the midst of those things and have peace in your heart. May we all have that taste of freedom that motivates us to practice and continue to practice, not just for ourselves, not just for our loved ones, but for all beings in all worlds and all directions. I just realized that I didn't tell you what we ended up calling the Sangha in Oakland. <laughs> we call it the Alphabet Sangha now. <laughs> I thought that was... You know.